Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we mull over issues to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown. This program and extended segments of the feature interview, road test and panel discussion are also available on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And in this program, we look at news stories from around the world, including a report that reveals the future of highways. In our feature interview, we talk to a transport planner who has a range of ideas to reduce congestion without building massive freeways. And we road test the Nissan X-Trail. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith, we talk about the BioBus. You'll be amazed at what it uses as its power source. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, let's get the program going. First, the news. It is quite possible that future highways will be made from solar materials and will be governed by sophisticated technologies that communicate with cars, road infrastructure and GPS systems, according to a report titled The Future of Highways. The solar panel roads would also contain LED lighting and heating to melt snow. Vehicles will be becoming increasingly intelligent and self-aware. A combination of the connected vehicle and the internet will enable vehicles to broadcast and receive information on traffic, speed, weather and potential safety hazards. As a result, cars will be able to travel more closely together and react more quickly to variables around them. As well as highways evolving, the report foresees the pattern of ownership will change in the coming years with commuters more likely to purchase access to a vehicle rather than the vehicle itself. The mayor of Paris has called for diesel cars to be banned from the French capital by 2020 and said pedestrian-only neighbourhoods should be created in the city centre as part of a plan to fight pollution. Anne Hidalgo said today 60% of Parisians do not have cars, compared with 40% in 2001. Things are changing quickly. Hidalgo's plan also includes limits on tourist buses that clog Paris streets, banning trucks from cutting through the city on their way elsewhere and adding electric vans to the city's car-sharing scheme. And in London... Mayor Boris Johnson has suggested that car-free Sundays could be introduced to parts of the city amid warnings that Britain's roads will be jammed with an extra 7 million drivers within 20 years. The mayor said he was in favour of copying a scheme in Jakarta where areas of the capital have been closed to traffic from 6am every Sunday. Australian farmers and agricultural executives have warned there may be little benefit from a free trade agreement with China unless railways carting produce to ports for export are urgently upgraded. The National Farmers Federation chief executive said the nation's supply chain was inefficient, driving up costs for farmers that could leave them uncompetitive as other nations strike similar deals with China over the next five years. Transporting grain to ports strips about one-third off the price farmers earn on each tonne of grain they sell. Australia's chief scientist is urging governments to consider a proposal to use natural gas as a transport fuel to reduce the country's reliance on imported oil. A study found using natural gas to fuel trucks 
could increase Australia's fuel self-sufficiency by 50 to 70 percent by 2030, compared to the current level of just 30 to 40 percent. One of the researchers of the study said it was time for state and federal governments to consider taking out an insurance policy against the unquantifiable and unpredictable threat posed by Australia's dependence on imported fuel. Queensland Senator Matt Carnarvon, when officially launching the study, said Australia doesn't meet the International Energy Agency obligations to hold 90 days worth of net oil imports in the country and at times are well below this figure. The WA Police and State Government will participate in an innovative trial to crack down on car theft in the Perth metropolitan area. Perth drivers most likely to have their car stolen will be approached to have free GPS trackers installed in their vehicles. The owner uses their smartphone to set an electronic fence around the vehicle, and if the car is driven outside the fence, an alert is sent. When the theft is reported, police will have immediate access to real-time tracking of the vehicle. National Motor Vehicle Theft Reduction Council spokesman Ray Carroll said that in WA, nine in every ten cars are protected by an immobiliser, but thieves were breaking into homes to steal the keys of late model vehicles. It's not always possible or affordable to park your car near your desired destination, so BMW has developed an electric scooter that can fit into your boot to use for the last part of your trip or for short trips during your working day. Called the City Surfer, it is designed to have a range of about 25 kilometres and can travel up to 25 kilometres per hour. You can manually pedal the scooter which will increase its range and improve your fitness or just rely on its battery power. The City Surfer weighs just 18 kilograms and can fold up small enough to fit into the boot of a modern Mini. It's also designed to be carried on buses and trains. I think I want one. That has been the news. Congestion has a huge impact on our cities. The cost to the community is enormous. Governments usually have a few plans for some major roads that they say will help bust congestion. But new roads are expensive. What can we do about making the existing roads less congested? Well, Rachel Smith is a transport planner from AECOM and has been researching this matter. And in early 2015, she is going to publish a book called Decongestion. To give us a flavour of what solution she is proposing, she joins us on the line now. Rachel, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. That's really kind. Thank you. And you work as a transport uh, planner. What what does that involve? So we do a lot of um, strategic um, work. So we plan um, new roads, new public transport, new active transport. So working with um, government agencies, with councils, um, with the private sector as well on big infrastructure projects as well as kind of the strategic thinking and the thought leadership as well. Oh, that's good, isn't it? How did you go about looking for these more practical uh, solutions? Well, actually, lots of the solutions are things that I did in the UK. So when I was working in the UK, I came to Australia 
um, in about six years ago. So um, in the UK, there's not as much money. We're really fortunate in Australia that we have lots of money for infrastructure. Um, in the UK, we've got a lot more people, a lot less space, and we have to sweat the, um, the infrastructure that we've got. So a lot more low-cost things, things like walking to school, using more public transport, car-free days out, all of those kind of things, things that you can do quickly and cheaply. I think walking to school is one area we desperately need to think about. It's become much more by car, yet uh, the health of benefits and the, the sense of community you get by walking to school, I think is uh, a, something we need to encourage. Oh, yeah. And when I, I did a project in um, Falmouth um, in the UK, and, we, and they had something like 38% of children walking to school. We did some really low-cost work there, things like a, a, a project called the 100 Club, where children had like a star sheet, and every time they walked to or from school, they could colour in their, their little star. And then we had, in Walk to School Weeks, because we've been doing lots of promotions, we had 92% of children walking to school. I always say that we went from 38% to 92% by just printing off A4 sheets of paper with 100 stars on them. So it just shows you really can make really good change really quickly and without spending a huge amount um, on new infrastructure. We didn't pay for any infrastructure there, so yeah. That's a lovely story. Now, you've also been looking at the seven major mistakes that are being made. So... Because the book is targeted, well, it's for anyone to read, but it, it's kind of targeted at mayors and city leaders. We did quite a lot of um, interviews with mayors, um, and their kind of top challenges when trying to cut congestion were providing good public transport. So most of our cities believe, or the city leaders believe, that providing um, alternative transport options to the private car is the biggest challenge and that good public transport is an essential ingredient to reduce congestion. Yes, of course. So they really want to see, you know, large-scale private investment in public transport and real incentives to encourage men, women and children to use public transport. And another one? Another one was integrating transport and land use. So when we plan, sometimes... Um, planning is done, land use planning is done without considering transport and sometimes transport is done um, without considering the land use. So they were saying that changing the urban form so less people need to travel so far and increasing residential developments along kind of major transport routes Um, would be a really good thing to do in the future. I totally agree. I don't think you build a new road necessarily to increase capacity, but you might build it to remove vehicles from the centre of uh, towns, which makes them much more viable. And it's it's that land use, as you say, land use usage that becomes very, very important. And so another mistake that's often made... Um, so these aren't in order now, but getting businesses and workplaces to stagger their working hours. So city leaders are saying they really need to encourage businesses to see the value of staggered working hours, working from home, flexible working, um, so that we can reduce the peak hour demand on our roads and transport networks. Uh, Rachel, that sounds like some very good, practical and achievable ideas that we can yeah. get 
with with transport. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's Rachel Smith, a transport planner from AECOM, talking about making improvements to our city road systems which don't cost an arm and a leg. And you can hear a longer version of that on our website at www.drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. In June this year, just before the launch of their new Jazz, Honda sales were 34% behind the same period last year, and the month of June itself was even worse, being nearly 39% behind June 2013. Into this market came the new Jazz, with Honda predicting that they would sell 800 a month, and they have. From August to November, Honda has averaged 880 Jazzes a month. And now their city car, the car called City, uh, which is the sedan brother of the Jazz, is also selling well. Honda is now only 20% behind in their year-to-date sales. The Accord and the CRV are the ones that are really pulling down their numbers. But back to the Jazz. Why is it doing so well? To find out, I have on the line motoring journalist Alan Zervas from the website gaycarboys.com. Alan, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. My pleasure. Uh, now, the look of this, uh, how, how does it appeal? I like the look. I, I think it's, it's very Japanese. There's a Japanese look about every Japanese brand. It's pretty <laughs> much the same. There's that Dame Edna front, There's, you know, with the smiley face and the, the, the big kind of lights at the side. Then they've got the big lights at the back as well. Um, it looks like a city car, and pretty much all city cars look the same. <laughs> so, you know, I quite like the... the, the alloys on the top model mm. uh, I think it's a nice thing It's uh, got a stubby nose but a very long slopy front windscreen to it and this distinct lines down the side as well uh, I, I, I saw one the other day and thought yeah in, in the flesh I think it looks better in the flesh than in the photos uh, uh, Absolutely absolutely. this is one of those cars where you look at the photos you know, and frankly it could go either way then you have a look at it in the, in the flesh and it's a completely different story. It really does look quite nice. Mm, yeah, I think it's got a, a nice sort of balance to it. Uh, the interior, now the use of the space inside, that's pretty clever, isn't it? It is incredibly clever. First of all, there's that magic seat at the back, or what they call the magic seat. And you can you know, push it right out of the way. You can put tall things on the floor behind the driver. Uh, it's got, I think, either 18 or 20 different configurations. It's, they really pushed the boat out. It's the same as the previous model. That, that uh, Magic Seat was in the previous model as well. Very big inside. It feels nice and roomy. The cabin feels uh, like a good quality. Hmm. And I would almost go to say that the top model feels almost plush. Hmm. Oh, that's pretty good, yeah. And I like the seats. They can fold flat on the floor too. So the space you get... You, it makes it uh, really very usable, very easy to do. I think even if you fold down the front seat and that, you get up to about 1492 litres, which is incredible. That's right. Yeah. 
And it's also 1490 usable litres, so because mm. the car's quite boxy. Yes. So you can fit quite a lot in. You don't have to push stuff into you know, crevices. Um, so very handy for moving things. And in fact, we've moved stuff in a, a, a jazz. So it just goes to show how how uh, flexible they really are. Yeah, indeed. And given that it's the smallest Honda, uh, fitting in the light to compact or comp- uh, the sort of uh, micro to light sort of category of cars, uh, it's pretty good in that regard. The interior, how how uh, you were saying, it has a nice feel to it. I think so. I, I notice with most uh, car makers these days that when they talk about leather, uh, if they have a full leather interior, they'll say so. If not, what that usually means is that you've got a mixture of man-made and natural fibres. Mm. So the front of the seats, for example, will probably be almost all leather. The rest will probably be what you and I used to call pleather. <laughs> so the dashboard, maybe the doors, uh, things like that will be covered in this uh, material that really does a very good imitation of the real thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that adds a touch of um, luxury. Hmm. Yeah, for, for a small car and uh, one, as we'll talk about in a while, price, uh, priced up to about twenty two, twenty three thousand dollars $23,000, it's pretty good. The engine and gearbox, uh, one standard the engine, engine for the... The normal petrol ones. That's right. It's the 1.5. I don't mind it. I don't mind it. It, it, Look, it it could do with a tiny little turbo. That's my favourite line. Whenever I do a (laughs) a review of a Honda, I I ring Honda and I plead with them just to put a tiny turbo on it. So much so that Honda sent me an email the other day and they said, "Here's your turbo." (laughs) So they've got one coming. Now, whether it's for the city, I don't know. All right, that's lovely, Alan. Thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome, David. Thanks for having me. And that's motoring journalist Alan Zervas from the website gaycarboys.com talking about the Honda Jazz. And a fuller interview can be heard on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Now it's time for our discussion session, and like last week, this week we are again joined by Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. Hello, David. I have a story here. It's about a bus. It's a new bus, and it's began operating in the UK, and it uses fuel that we will never, ever run out of. The 40-seat biobus runs between Bristol Airport and Bath, and it's powered by methane gas stored in tanks on the roof. And the methane is produced by human waste and food waste. They take the carbon dioxide out and uh, what's left over, they mix a bit of propane in and away they go. Now, one journey, Brian, can uh, the, the fuel for this needs, for the 300-kilometre journey, needs the equivalent waste output of five people. I wouldn't have thought that was very high. No, are they nominated when you get on? <laughs> so the first five people or the... People who are perhaps on the uh, on the pensioner discount. You're, you sit what? up the back. <laughs> You're fueling who, the bus. Who had an Indian takeaway last <laughs> night? That's right. <laughs> they keep them for the turbo up the hills. 
And David, it's a good thing it goes to Bath because I can imagine, you know, after riding the human waste bus that you could use the bath at the end of it. And the pictures on the side of the bus actually show the passengers sort of sitting on toilets, reading newspapers and the like, which I think is uh, a, yes. a, a lovely touch. Is that the equivalent of actually what happens in there? Do you have toilets in the back? Is it an enclosed process? Well, I, is what, I, I, what I think I they're missing know. an opportunity here to to really offer that two-for-one public toilet mobile thing. I mean, if it's going uh, 300 kilometres, some people are bound to need to go to the toilet along the way, aren't they? Well, uh, what about if you're one of the five that's needed to get it there, maybe you get your fare back. Yeah, yeah, you are powering us. Other people pay you, perhaps in food, kebabs. I like the idea they mentioned that it's, it's a bus that is actually powered by people living in the local area including quite possibly those on the bus itself. And that's a, a lovely touch, isn't it? That um, you know, your, yes. your conspicuous consumption is helping to, to move oh, this yes. bus. And, of course, uh, as the things like the 5-2 diet become more popular, <laughs> then you know, they'll have to cut weekend services. <laughs> well, that's a way of reducing the load. <laughs> you, know, you can't travel on a day which is your diet. That's day. right. It's a fast day. A fast day. It's a slow day. You won't be able to take the bus. I just wondered whether they might collect the sort of farts in the in the thing, <laughs> the seats. Would, yes, which would serve dual purpose, <laughs> make it much more pleasant, but also give you power. I could see a, a taxi uh, could be powered that way very easily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Brian, you have a story of misogyny. Yes, David, Uber, the car, the company that offers um, uh, an alternative to taxis. Uh, has been caught up in some uh, fairly grubby and misogynistic um, tactics. Now, Uber, for those who may not know, it's been released here in Australia. It's called UberX. It's the bane of uh, the taxi industry. And effectively, it's uh, anybody who has a car can become an Uber driver, and and it's really a car share system. You you book the the trip, you pay for it, Online, so no money changes hands between you and the driver. And um, so, someone is heading somewhere, and and they can take you. Then uh, they get paid for that. So, it's quite big in the states. It's uh, quite popular. It's been quite popular. And as I say, it's it's here as UberX. But um, it's some people have started becoming a bit concerned about, um, I guess, what they call the bro kind of um, culture of the thing. Kind of uh, you know, young men misogynistic, aggressive kind of culture. So it started when um, a journalist exposed that an Uber driver who'd been accused of assault actually had a criminal record. Now, this should have been uncovered by the background checks that Uber claims to do, but they also identified a culture of blaming the passenger when things like this happen. So if women were um, attacked or molested by Uber drivers, then the company's PR team would would sort of start a whispering campaign to say, look, the women were drunk or they were dressed provocatively. It uh, came to quite a head when um, one Uber executive called Emile Michael was was caught on tape describing uh, a campaign he was planning to, um, to sort of start against a female journalist who had raised some questions about Uber. So he was prepared to spend a lot of money to uh, basically um, destroy her life. Uh, And so it's it's interesting. There seems to be a bit of a a groundswell against Uber for this very reason, that the company is, uh, I guess, um, 
childish and male dominated. Do, David, do you think these are fair concerns? Uh, I think the the issue about who picks you up has to be pretty rigorously looked at. Uh, I mean, it is a case to some degree. Your taxi driver not only do you have a some sort of selection process, but you also have a process that if you are unhappy in any way, and it doesn't have to be a severe way, but if you are unhappy, then you have a company you can go back to who It'll will look at you. Yeah, but in this yeah, case, look, it's look working the other way, isn't it? They're protecting yeah. their brand. Um, at the expense of their customers and uh, and not taking what should be very serious complaints seriously. Interestingly, David, I had the Uber app on my telephone, uh, and mm-hmm. after sort of reading this story, I've deleted the um, the app. I won't be using Uber because of this uh, this oh. approach and this objectification of women. There, because some of their advertising has been quite sexist as well. Okay. I wonder whether they might, uh, this might be an approach that they give to motoring journalists. If we condemn a car, the car manufacturer might start looking into our past. That, that trip yes. you made to Bali, Brian, mm. was that you or was that your twin brother? Yes, yeah, so yeah, that's exactly the sort of risk, David, that uh, companies will go too far in protecting the, their, their company's well, reputation. The other thing they do, did was they listed the company who's, companies who had... Uh, Supporting Uber. Hmm. Yeah, in in Uber. So there might be a social media campaign. And these can be very effective. Yes, indeed they can. Hmm. All right. uh, Now, Brian, um, there is a guy by the name of Jack Cottle. And what he did was he borrowed his girlfriend's VW Polo and he drove it onto the track at Brands Hatch during a race meeting. During a race, in fact, I believe, this summer. Uh, and he's been jailed because of it for eight months. That's, uh, you know, that, uh, I think that's perhaps justified. But, uh, gee, I, I, I think that uh, it's a pretty crazy thing to happen. How on earth did they let him get in? I know. I, their security was, was clearly not up to much. But, but he, um, he made it easier for them by filming it, for a start. It was during a VW Beetle race. Um, sort of, um, and, and going quite high speeds. And he had the girlfriend in the car and another friend in the car as well who filmed it. And uh, his girlfriend, I think, was the only one who was trying to get him to stop doing it. Um, it. What got him his eight months, I think, David, was a lack of remorse. This young man seems like an illiterate idiot based on his uh, Facebook posts. He, he, he calls himself full throttle cottle. And uh, he really just wasn't concerned at all. You know, uh, he doesn't. Yeah. He says here, "I done something what no one's ever done before. It was stupid, not going to lie, but moaned to Brands Hatch instead because they failed the security breach." Ah, Brian, it is always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. That's uh, Brian Smith, and we were talking some quirky news stories about the world of motoring and transport. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Brent Davidson and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Now, if you would like to hear extended segments of the show or past episodes, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive is syndicated to stations across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>